Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We are sticking to our plan to hold off on a guest every several weeks or so, and today's a good day because there is an awful lot of health and healthcare news and topics to hone in on. And I'm happy to say that I am done with COVID, like really, really done, at least for Wait the a moment. minute, done? Do you mean done with your own case of COVID? Or are you like the president in, in declaring that COVID is... I, I or like own, the Republicans are saying, today it's over. Yeah, that's my point. Like, I'm done with my own personal COVID case for the moment. And I fully expect that I will have to revisit it at some time in my life if, I'm, <laughs> if I live so long, but I'm happy it's done for the moment. But my God, like we do seem to just keep COVID in the news constantly. And right now, uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm frustrated seeing uh, people with revisionist history about how we could have done things so much better with the uh, with the benefit of hindsight. But for me, at least, I, I don't know, Harlan, I had two really bad days that I would say were equivalent to the worst viral illnesses I had when I was an adolescent, nothing in my adulthood. But other than that, it was a bad cold. Well, come on, Howie, you're an anecdote. You're, you know, so right. we've generalized from your experience to, no, no, so no, we know that there not. are, well, so what's, what, so what is your point about that? Yeah. So my point is that, that you know, first of all, there was a lot of uncertainty there. You and I even talked about it. You never know. Are you at your peak when it's really bad or are you just getting bad? Um, pulse oximeter at home is useful in the event you start getting short of breath. I did not, but I think people should have it. I was able to monitor myself in a way I've never done with a viral illness. I was able to check uh, temps all day long and just know how I'm doing. I was able to check my viral load to some quantitative but mostly qualitative um, you know, uh, effort using the antigen testing I had at home. And well, well, I, I, so you, you, you had a lot of extra stuff. Well, let me ask you this. After having been through it, did it change your perspective on the pandemic? And, and where do you stand today after having survived your episode with COVID? You think it's the first time you were infected, right? I do. I mean, it, you know, I used to think that a cough that I had in February of 2020 could have been covid and I guess it's still possible, but there's no question that my body responded with an enormous systemic response to this. It's hard to imagine that I got lucky in February 2020, so I'm pretty convinced this is the first time I've really had it. And, you know, look, as Perry Wilson said, we know the population-based effect of our vaccine efforts. We don't know the individual effects. I'd like to believe, again, anecdote N of one, that the vaccines are what allowed me to return to work and return to 100% very, very quickly. But I won't know that. Yeah, but, but so how did it change? Did it change your perspective? Getting it? Uh, it certainly took some of the fear away. I mean, listen... Uh, you and I have talked a lot about long COVID. We've talked a lot about the very bad cases that we're aware of among people that we know. Um, seemingly, at least at this point, I've skirted all of those possibilities. It makes it a little less scary for me personally. But who knows? Maybe the second time won't be so lucky. But but what about, I'm just trying to get at the generalizable lesson that you took away from your episode, if any. I mean, I know you went through it and you survived it and you're less scared of it. But how about you've got a big Twitter presence? I mean, are you telling people don't worry about it? It's not a big deal or oh, God, like, what's no, your I, current stance on the pandemic? My current stance is that the vaccines 
are still essential. The evidence about the vaccines remains uh, very strong about them. Um, and quite frankly, if you asked me whether I would rather have gotten COVID or gotten a vaccine, uh, I would 100% prefer the vaccine and I would 100% prefer to get my immunity primarily from the vaccine up front rather than from infection up front. Well, but you know that the vaccine doesn't really protect you against infection to any great extent anyway. I mean, it's really protecting you against complications. But yeah, it protects against the severity of the disease. And I had, even though it felt horrible for two days, it is categorically a mild case of COVID. I will never know whether it could have been moderate or severe, but thankfully it was mild. So I wanted to tick down, you know, one of the issues here is like all the misinformation and stuff that's going around. And without taking really strong partisan sides. I, I want us to try to be as objective as possible. I saw this piece that came out from, I know, one of your favorite commentators, Tucker Carlson. And, you know, he he went on to talk about the five things that Jeff Zintz, you know, the new chief of staff for the president, who was the in charge of the COVID response for a long time, and what, what he should admit, what he should admit. But I wanted to take down these for a second, because Whatever you think of Carlson, he's very influential. I mean, there's a large segment of the population that really listens carefully to what he says and and believes him. And I think this is one of the watershed moments, really. If we can't even come together about what was accomplished during this period, I mean, obviously there were mistakes made, always mistakes made that we can learn from. But but we got a problem. So I'm just going to tick down these and get your response. I'm just kind of curious what you think. Yep. So first he says uh, that, uh, Jeff Zentz said, admit promises about experimental mRNA vaccines fell short. This is a weird one because it, first it's, of course, highlighting that there's an emergency use authorization for the vaccines. They've never been approved and falling short. It's always a little vague. But what do you think about that? Dinging the 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 vaccines. Look, I think we've had enormous success with the vaccines. I think if you go and look at the success of the polio vaccine, at the success of the rotavirus vaccine, the standards that we hold for our vaccines vary based on the disease, how effective and how the vaccines actually work. And I think these vaccines have proven to be enormously effective at two things, reducing mortality, reducing hospitalization, presumably reducing the impact of it on the entire population, but certainly those two categories. It has saved lives. I think we have enormous evidence that it saved lives. And the safety profile remains very, very good. Um, but if you talk to the Tucker Carlson audience, you will hear the opposite of what I just said. You'll hear that it was ineffective and it was harmful. So uh, I'm going to take down the rest of them, but I will say one thing about this. I, I as I'm trying to take as objective a view as possible. I, I think the, the evidence seems overwhelming. I don't say seems, so evidence is overwhelming of the net benefit of these vaccines. To me, urging people to doubt them, doubt that evidence, is akin to yelling fire in a crowded theater. As you know, the prototypical case the Supreme Court referred to as being a, a threat. I mean, that, 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 that free speech should be cordoned off in some ways when people are actually urging people to be, have behaviors that could be harmful to him. I, I'm not suggesting that, that he should be censored, but I am just saying it worries me when it comes out. So his second one was, I, I know this is going to be one of your favorites. I, I don't know if you've read this or not. Yet. I did. You, it, you sent it to me, so I did read it because I read oh, everything good. I'm you I'm glad. Send. I know I sent it, but I know you're busy. <laughs> Acknowledge that repurposed generic drugs should play a role in the ongoing fight against COVID. Well, now I don't have any problem with saying let's repurpose generic drugs, but then he goes on to say, what am I talking about? I know. Affordable medications like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, 
and, and uh, fluvoxamine, fluvoxamine, yep. which also was just studied, right? Just the results. Of, what's your response to that? Look, I, I mean, he is just playing to his audience and saying things that are patently untrue. I, we do not have evidence of any of those things being effective in any large studies. There was anecdotal evidence early on about fluvoxamine. There was a little evidence early on about, um, uh, uh, you know, about uh, ivermectin and even maybe hydroxychloroquine. But we've gotten a lot of data since then. And you would have to think there's an enormous conspiracy out there to think that this is being suppressed at somehow the highest, highest level. And I've almost never seen this level of misinformation. As you know, uh, Kushal Kadakia and Adam Beckman and I just wrote a piece yeah. that was published in Nature about urging the FDA to get involved in this misinformation. You know, th this just, I find it to be maddening. And then the third one is scrap plans for annual COVID-19 vaccinations. Now, stop any campaigns around continuing vaccinations. I, again, first of all, it's a premature thing to say. We're thinking about doing these vaccination cycles in September. Why would you scrap a plan when you're so far away from it right now? We should actually be developing what we think is the best possible vaccine. Um, there is no evidence that even the bivalent vaccine has failed at a population level. It certainly wasn't as effective as we would like it to be if we had somehow you know, gotten the exact uh, variant right at this moment. But it's the best we have, and it's not that different from flu vaccination, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'm just going to hit these last two. One is remove all pandemic mandates. Of course, you know, this may be going forward, not back. But anyway, what do you, what's, your, what's your view on the pandemic mandates? I mean, I think that there were very relatively few mandates put in place at the federal level. There ultimately were some, particularly for the military. I think at the moment they were put in place, they were absolutely the right thing to do. And like with a lot of other things, inertia probably allowed them to stick around a little longer than they needed to. But nonetheless, I, I think it is insane to start talking about reversing the way we treat public health and populations with infectious disease. It's the right way we do it. And by the way, we've treated the military differently from the general population with lots of vaccines and treatments. So the last thing he says is concede that vaccine injuries are real. And this is the one that, that bothers me because I believe they are real. I think people have been of injured course. by vaccines. Yeah, I, I, of almost we, we've never had vaccines that, that don't in some ways for some people cause Side effects. And every drug, effects. every drug, right? I mean, Tylenol. Yeah. So when you mix this in, I mean, of course we should acknowledge this. I mean, the point about the vaccines is there's a large net benefit, but, you know, they're not without any risk. And I think we need to learn more. We need to invest funds to try to study these people. But it becomes politicized so that, you know, you, you, you basically polarize the debate. You can't even talk about vaccine injury without entering into a large scale political battle from one side or the other. But you wisely avoid the, the sort of weird part of Twitter that I very often engage with. And I do engage with a lot of the audience of Tucker Carlson. They will tell you with tremendous confidence that people are dropping dead every single day from heart attacks from the vaccines. It is happening everywhere, Harlan. Like you probably can't walk down the street without seeing these people. This dropping. is what they're claiming. This yeah, and they claiming. but they claim it with a level of confidence that when Damar Hamlin has his event, it's sort of like, ah, this time the camera was on. That's why we saw it. 
Well, look, Howie, we have a representative in Congress who said that George Soros used satellites to create fires in California. And there are right. lots of people that believe that. I mean, right. I, I do think we have a major problem in this country that we can't reach a consensus around the truth. And I, I've really begun to believe all of this around public health is so intricately tied with with politics. I mean, look at China. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, they went from a zero covid policy, you know, then there was a bit of unrest, especially right. by employees and concern about supply chain that ultimately broke the back of this policy. But it turned on a dime. They just had this big celebration, uh, Chunwan, which is the sort of big TV show on the Chinese New Year. And, you know, like it would have been unthinkable a few months ago that everyone on there would be without masks and, you know, basically in close contact. And it, it just because that was that show is used to sort of send latent messages in the past it would have been about how we all need to be careful now that message is it's all over and right. and a large segment of the chinese population has gotten infected we have no idea what that consequence was in terms of loss of life but it's just so you know I, i'm almost losing faith that there you know we can co coalesce around the truth when our governments are you know so polarized and and jumping back and forth i think what bothers me about that article one of the things at least is this revisionism this idea that with the benefit of hindsight, you're now going to tell people how stupid they were. Like, I would love to know in March 2020 what I know now. Like, I would love to have known that at that time. I think we would have made different decisions. I think we would have masked up earlier. I think we would have uh, probably gone back to work a little earlier, but with masks, I think we would have known that vaccines are going to be coming in nine months and would have had a little more patience. There's a lot of things that would have been benefit, but we didn't know that at that time and we did the best we could. And I don't regret those decisions. Yeah. And you, you know, my view on this, which is that the, the between the, the treatments, the vaccines, the, the, the experience, the hosts, who, us, who many of us have gotten it and, and the change in variant, you know, the, the disease became less threatening than it was at the very beginning, but though, still for high-risk individuals, it's a very important threat. I, I think I told you that my, my mother, uh, I yeah. didn't actually ask her permission to disclose this, but I don't think she'll mind. I, my mother came down with COVID. By the way, COVID and flu. And two things about this experience. One is that it struck me how little we know about whether we should be treating both of them. I, I have my doubts about Tamiflu anyway, but, but you know, the, I looked really into the research. There's very little research, and there are lots of people who are getting both. Right. But what bothered me even more was, so she's in Florida. She goes to an urgent care clinic. She gets diagnosed with COVID, and she gets sent home with molnupiravir prescription. And why now, not Paxlovid? No reason. She's got no contraindication. If you look at the NIH recommendations, it's a, it's only to be used in cases where Paxlovid's not available. Yeah. Now, there haven't been head-to-heads, right. but it does seem like Paxlovid's maintaining its edge against these new variants. There was a study in New England Journal that looked at vi antiviral activity. These are antiviral drugs, Paxlovid, which is a combination of two drugs, right. one to potentiate the other one. And, and this one is, is a you know, there were there were lots of ages. People get confused because my mother can't ask a question. Is this the right one? And she comes home and tells me about the prescription. I'm going like that is not the guideline recommended approach. Yeah. So I got to step in and make sure that she gets the right prescription. But I, I keep thinking like even on the ground, the front lines, docs are having trouble keeping up with the most contemporary information and making the right prescriptions for what is a, a person who would be at risk. Yeah, I mean, look, Molnupiravir was approved, I think, a little earlier than Paxlovid, but there's never been a time 
that we've been convinced that it's better than Paxlovid. I, as you know, uh, have a direct contraindication to Paxlovid because of the drug I'm on for my atrial fibrillation. Um, and so I could not take Paxlovid. I thought briefly about whether I should take molnupiravir, but I'm really not in a high-risk group, and I figured I could ride it out. I don't know if that was a smart move. Uh, people have also said to me, why didn't I reach out to my own primary care provider? Um, and I, I made my own decisions about that. But I cannot understand how anyone gets prescribed molnupiravir yeah. uh, ahead of Paxlovid in this situation. Well, it's just another issue to me that there's a lot of confusion. Actually, I was quoted in a Philadelphia Inquirer article that was trying to make clear for older people who get COVID that, that Paxlovid is really the right thing to do. It's ironic that I was quoted in that article and then my mother ends up not even being prescribed yeah. that when she goes into urgent care. But I think we have to get better at communication in this country. We have to get better at being able to make, even saying these names, most people listening to us will go, Mala, what? You know, right. and it's right. like, it, there, and it does have trade names, but those trade names are not easy to remember either. And as you know, Evisheld, which was the, Monoclonal the antibodies that yeah. were given to protect us have now just been taken off by the FDA, yeah. their emergency use authorization, because they they're work. felt to be ineffective yeah. now with right. the new variants. But but people have trouble keeping up with all this, Both even frontline docs who are, you know, busy and, and there's a lot of information. We've got to figure out that, how do we coalesce around the evidence? What does the best evidence say? And how do we best communicate it to healthcare professionals and to lay people in ways that we can be sure that they're having the opportunity to be treated the best possible way to get the best possible outcomes? I will say this for people. The one thing that is more clear to me now than ever before is have a lot of antigen tests in your home. Um, you're going to be isolating. You're going to want to test early to prevent other people from getting it from you. But you're going to want to test for your own benefit to see if you're starting to fade in terms of peak antigen production. And there is comfort from it. And I'm happy I had them in the home. Well, and so what was your approach? So you got sick and how long did, are you isolating? So I isolated fully for seven days as, according to Yale's protocol. On day seven, which was yesterday morning, they released me from uh, isolation and made recommendations that I should continue to mask 100% of the time when I'm around others. So right now I'm in my office alone with the door closed. But even when I walk out into the hall, I put the mask back on at this point. It'll stay on until late on Friday. That's when I complete day 10. And then I'm off. The good thing is that I'm simultaneously also still uh, antigen testing and it's faded. It's basically down to what probably is a, a, a non-infectious load of viral particles. No, but you're I, still positive, though. You're still positive. I am still positive. And from what I've talked to people, you can be positive for a week, two weeks. If mm -hmm. I was going to be around my parents in a small, my parents are elderly, obviously, in a small uh, room, I, I would not be around them right now. But I, I feel reasonably confident. <laughs> Here's my concern is that, you know, and you know this, you've said this to me too, which is that, you know, you're able to manage your life like that. For people who have jobs where they're dependent on yeah. hourly pay, they don't get paid if they don't work, or or students, you know, we could ask, uh, you know, Yale students, you know, what's it like to get sick? I mean, you know, you've got classes, you've got activities, you may feel better, you know, uh, it, it, it almost, the way that things are working in society now, it's... I, you may have adopted this hyper-responsible approach, but for many people, it's untenable. And it's also not socially what people are doing right now. Yeah, although I will say among the Yale students, I see a lot of students doing what I'm doing, which is wearing masks, 
um, presumably because they're sort of in the fade out days from their own COVID infection. For some people who are worried, I've seen people continuing to wear N95s at times. I presume that they um, may have a higher risk profile for themselves. So look again, among the educated individuals, people that, you know, are, are really being fed good information all the time. It may be a lot easier, but we, you're right. I mean, for somebody who works in a service industry who isn't going to get two weeks off just to deal with one infection, we need to give them very good guidance that protects them economically as well as their family and themselves health-wise. Yeah. So let's pivot now. Uh, there's one thing I'll just say about that. I heard a, a line, somebody said something like COVID had been influenzaized which is we're now treating it a lot like flu. Yeah. People got flu, then they went out. They they didn't really wait a certain amount of time. They wait till they felt better. And, and, you know, it's sort of, as I see the behaviors in society, it seems like that that's what the default is, you know, to be continued. The, the pandemics, yeah. I know Biden is going to declare it over May 11th, but uh, I'm not sure it's done with us yet. We'll have to see how, how things go. So I want to pivot to this article that showed up in JAMA. It was by... Don Berwick, who was the interim administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, was a mentor to me, a, a, a teacher and mentor to very many people, and a guy who really led the charge about improving quality, improving health care, remarkably articulate, thoughtful person. Uh, I, I first met him when I was in medical school, and he really actually had a big influence on how I think about the world and, and on the career that I eventually Took. He wrote a piece, Howie, that you mentioned to me in JAMA about the avarice in healthcare and how it's having such a harmful effect on on our healthcare institutions and on healthcare outcomes. You want to give us a little few reflections on on that piece? Yeah, I appreciate that, Harlan. I, you know, he he writes a scathing um, essay on this, and you can you can feel his own personal anger, and I share most of it. Um, are, you know, he is, he's got a decade or more on me in terms of his career. I've only known about him for about 22 years, not as long as you, but in all those years, he's been the guy that you look to as a shining example of a, a pediatrician dedicated to quality, safety, improving healthcare, and so on. Yeah, the uh, the moral, moral compass of the profession. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he's disgusted. You could tell he's disgusted and, you know, the, the biggest difference between his assessment is, and mine is he's pointing fingers mostly all around, but not enough at physicians. And I've often said that we've seen the enemy and it is us. Um, you know, it, it is all around us. It, the medical industrial complex is a $4.3 trillion industry that enriches an awful lot of people, variably, of course. I'm not saying that doctors are as rich as pharmaceutical company executives or investors, but nonetheless, it is a very good source of income from an awful lot of people. But you can't not look at it and, and, and not notice that it fails an awful lot of people as well, both a quality point of view, a safety point of view, an access point of view, uh, a justice point of view. Uh, tens of millions of people remain uninsured. More than that are underinsured. You and I have explicitly talked about that. And the burden of cost falls on all of us. And, and quite frankly, it falls on our country in terms of its competitiveness. So he's disgusted. Let me pick out something in this, and then I want to get to his recommendations. And I'm not sure I share exactly your no, I, focus yeah, on course. physicians, because 
because I, I just think it's it's really like you said, it's the, the whole the whole ball of wax. It's like yeah. it's it, it's everything, the incentives, everything that's the way it's set up in this country. I'm not focused on physicians. I just think they're left out of the blame to the at I the beginning it. of the article. But let me pull out this piece. So he talks about Medicare Advantage. So Medicare Advantage, for those of you listening in this country, what it is is an insurance program in which companies take on risk. They're they're paid a certain amount of money to cover a certain number of people, uh, people who've signed up with them, and then they will be responsible for paying for their health bills. They negotiate those health bills. They can create new programs. They can create ways to keep them healthy and, and keep them from getting things that are going to end up putting them in the hospital. And the notion is it creating an incentive for these companies to keep people healthy as opposed to just paying for fee-for-service, which is the alternative, where every time you use a service, you're, you, you know, the government will pay for that service. So the the idea is not bad. It's it's you know it's it's been around for a long time. It's other countries have used it. But what Don says, Howie, which I was really curious about, was that he said it, it's been an abject failure because there's been no evidence of improved outcomes and it's ended up costing much more money because of the way it was configured. It's driving people into this program. More than half of Americans who are 65 and older will now be in this Medicare Advantage, this sort of all coverage program. And he said, because the way it's configured and the way that that the math works out, that these companies, we will have spent $600 billion more on healthcare than if we had never started Medicare Advantage. Is that true? And and what do you think about that? Look, you're a better scholar on this topic than anyone I know. And you would probably recognize it's really hard to compare the enrollment in Medicare Advantage with the enrollment in fee-for-service Medicare because people get to make that decision on their own. And the majority of new enrollees in Medicare choose Medicare Advantage plans. Among the disabled, they're probably more likely to choose fee-for-service still. So it's a there's an adverse selection thing, and I'm not sure that quality, that adjustment for acuity will be able to adjust for that. Having said that, the evidence is reasonably strong that Medicare Advantage costs more. It also provides more benefits to individuals. It tends to have lower cost sharing. It tends to throw in some extra benefits like dental benefits, uh, gym memberships, uh, nutrition counseling, and other things. So it's not quite as simple as that. And I just answered this question, um, I think, to a reporter or someone in the last few days. And my answer was that if you ask me what my gut tells me, it pro- he's probably right. It, they weren't asking about him, but about what he said is probably right. But it's not definitively right. There's, it's not obvious that Medicare Advantage both costs more and provides less value. It just seems like on a government policy level that we need to, there's so many things we need to get right about this. We we seem to be enriching certain groups and and not others. There's great disparities, and health isn't improving in this country. Howie, I've really come to the conclusion that we have to make a commitment to provide full coverage to everyone. We we just simply cannot have people who are suffering because they've been the unfortunate victims of of disease. They've been put in positions where their health is jeopardized, or there are just beneficial. Uh, strategies that are beyond their financial reach. It's just not fair. It's just not fair that health would be the thing that that destroys lives, or that people can go bankrupt, or they lose their homes. So I, I you know, I agree it with just you. Can't happen. I agree with you, but a, but the harder part of that equation is how do you pay for it, or what do you pay for? And 
society up to this point has been either unwilling or scared about what it means to, to really upend our healthcare system. Um, you know, I could see the ads the moment you mentioned what you're talking about, about how you're going to lose your health insurance and you're going to have the equivalent of Medicaid and how do you like them apples? It's easy to scare people with stuff like that. Yeah, but I think people should be scared by the current system too because so many people are in jeopardy and so many people can't really afford to get the care they deserve in it. On the other hand, lots of people, quality suffers and, and lots of people are getting things they don't need. Anyway, yeah. And, and speaking of the quality issue, Harlan, you pointed out to me an article that was in, I think, uh, JAMA a few weeks ago um, and then reported on by NBC News about uh, adverse events happening in the inpatient setting, which is a follow up to a study from about 30 years ago that Harvard did based on New York inpatients in uh, 1984. You did a similar study or some some related study a few months ago. W what are your thoughts? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? What what are we doing? You know, the, the, these are these are studies of patient safety. We'd published a paper in JAMA they looked at about 10 years of experience where large numbers of charts, 30,000 a year, were sent to central locations. And professional, uh, healthcare professionals poured over these charts to try to understand the quality of care based on certain indicators. You know, things that shouldn't happen, did they happen? And, and what was the cause? And this one went in where, the, again, the, in Massachusetts, in the New England Journal of Medicine, they published this paper. David Bates led it. Where about 2,000, I think 2,800 charts or something like that were poured through and they tried to identify whether bad things had happened and whether, you know, preventable events were happening in the hospital. In that study, they suggested, indicated, uh, reported that one in four patients in the hospital have something unsafe occur to them, some bad event occur to them because of some preventable bad thing that happened. So right. suggesting that, you know, th this is a really high number of adverse safety events. And, you know, I think many of us are thinking that like, gosh, it is time for us to say stop. You look at the aviation industry and, you know, over the past few decades, they've worked hard to become a highly reliable system in which safety errors generally don't happen and generally don't happen. And and yet in medicine, it's stalled. You know, our, maybe our paper suggested there'd been some modest progress. Bates suggested not much. One in four is an alarming number. I don't know. What, what do you think, Howie? I don't know. First of all, we have seen real improvements. We've reduced hospital-acquired infections considerably, right? I mean, uh, in, uh, urinary tract infections used to be much more common. Now we remove urinary catheters earlier. We remove per peripheral and central venous catheters more uh, sooner, so we prevent uh, um, infections that way. There's a lot of things where we're actually making progress. You know, so I had, I was trying to figure out how many adverse events occurred during my admission, which began almost exactly two years ago. February 4th, 2021 is when I was admitted to the hospital for my last major uh, admission, 27 days in the hospital. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how many is the actual number of adverse events, but let me give you one example of what would count as an adverse event. I developed a corneal abrasion in the hospital, Right. That's somewhat avoidable. It's somewhat treatable. It happened very early on in the stay. 
Uh, Post-operatively, I was in a lot of pain. I was awake and falling asleep. The ophthalmologist who eventually consulted on me felt that my eyes were not closing completely when I would fall asleep under the influence of morphine. Um, and that was probably why I developed the abrasion, that my eyes were basically open for too long and I was not blinking. I don't know why. I spent the next several months, most of it in the, part of it in the hospital and the rest at home, having to treat that until the pain completely went away. It was not inconsequential. It was very disturbing to me. But that's an adverse event of a hospital admission. It had nothing to do with my original admission. It was acquired in the hospital. It was preventable. And yet I had it. So, like, I, I just want to point out how difficult these things are. Some of them are easier than others for us to tackle. But there's still major events that are occurring. Look, I still hear about wrong site surgery, believe it or not. You know, yeah. they're... You know, I don't know. Some of these, they just break your heart. There was, uh, you know, the one that I know occurred a little while ago, but, you know, hasn't completely, you know, been eliminated in our systems. A, a baby's born with hyperbilirubinemia. That is, they have a little bit of a substance in their yeah. in their system that can cause neurologic damage. But if you put them in a little bit of sunlight or UV light, you completely eliminate it. And people neglect to pick up on it, you know, right. and, and the kid for the rest of their life has got sequelae of that thing, you know. And, and there are Anyway, I, I look, I one in four is a big number, Howie. So even if it's one in 40, that's a big number. But on the plus and, side, Harlan, I haven't seen, I mean, this may seem funny to some people or inconsequential to others. We used to routinely see sponges left behind inside patients. <laughs> oh, it, hallelujah. A, we don't leave sponges in people's bodies I know, anymore. but it's an improvement. It's a real <laughs> improvement. I know, I know. But let me say, I, I really believe that we can be doing a whole lot better. People come in the hospital, they have a right to believe that yeah. they will not be harmed by the people trying to help them. And I think that, you know, and by the way, no one wants to purposely cause harm. So, you know, these is devastating for the healthcare professionals too. You know, if you've ever been in a situation where harm has accrued because of an error, I mean, you, you, you know, it's hard to recover from that. I agree. It's worse for the patient. I'm not suggesting there's any equivalence here, but I'm just saying, if you think about everyone, nobody wants this to happen. So we have to strengthen our systems. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought, yeah, that was a mind-blowing result. It was, you know, ours looked at particular indicators. They looked at a wider range of things. But I think both ours suggested there'd been some improvement, but said there's lots of way to go. And there's uh, indicated that big number of one in four, which blew my mind. So along those lines, Harlan, you shared with me an article about um, – implantable cardiac defibrillators and their use in the setting of MRI, which is a very, very, very common situation. People that are older that have these implantable cardiac defibrillators, these are combination pacemakers, as well as defibrillators that can prevent people from having sudden, sudden cardiac death. Um, these are put in place in people who tend to be older. Those people tend to eventually need an MRI for some good reason. And we used to tell them they couldn't do it at all. Now we're rethinking that. We've been rethinking that for a while. The newer uh, implantable cardiac defibrillators are MRI compliant. They're fine. But the question is, what do we do with the others? And along the lines of what we just talked about is how rare should an adverse event be? Are we willing to tolerate the very rare adverse event in order to get patients the usual care that they otherwise need in a safe but not perfectly safe manner? 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, look, I, I'd like to think that people who listen to us, you know, we can help people get smarter and people who, many people have pacemakers or family members got pacemakers and have heard about this, that, you know, some of the older generation or, or there's certain kinds of pacemakers that we forever have been suggesting that they, they don't go into an MR scanner. And, you know, just another example of things that, you know, become old wives' tales in a way. I mean, I don't mind that we had that. That was an abundance of caution. But by the time now, now it's years and years later, we study it rigorously and suggest mm, maybe it's not as big a deal. And, uh, you know, so I just chalk it up to like, gosh, we can, there's so many areas we need knowledge in. We've got to continue to push hard about things that we just assume. Instead, we just got to got to be, start, you know, testing and seeing it, different kind of study designs. Of course, like you said, can't you're not going to be able to randomize this group, right. but we can study them carefully to see whether or not there's some way that, that we can make an inference about whether future patients need to be concerned or not. But, but isn't it also an example, though, where if we don't change our policy and just tell people never to do it, they can't have an adverse event from it. But if we do start to allow it and one in a thousand of them goes bad, we do have an adverse event. And I think it's part of our sort of cost benefit calculus that we always have to be making that does allow for the possibility that an adverse event is not a never event. So at least not always a never event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting a getting a good idea of, of a precise estimate, a good estimate, so that we can make sure people are able to make informed choices is critical. And, yeah. and we have a lot of work to do on that. Great. Well, this is fun, Harlan. I, I enjoy talking to this. You, you have such a, <laughs> a ground in knowledge. It's, it's very no, helpful. No, no, come on, Howie. But, you, you know, look, it's fun for us to have this talk. I hope our listeners feel the same. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do to give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter. Um, at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to Megan Rainey, who has just been named the new dean of the Yale School of Public Health, which is newly, will be newly independent, independent school, uh, emergency medicine doctor, public health advocate, a wise, kind, compassionate leader who is just the perfect choice. Kudos to President Salovey and the team. I just wanted to give that kind of shout out because I'm real excited about her And she's an coming. upcoming guest, even even without her being announced. She was already an upcoming guest. Which will be so much fun. That'll it be will so be. much fun. Yep. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are terrific. For sure. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon. <laughs>